Hey, what's going on, everybody? I hope you guys are having a fantastic day. You're listening to Wicked Sources, the podcast. I'm your host, Mike, broadcasting live from Los Angeles. Every week, I bring you news information that could affect you, including alternative products that can bring a little comfort to your life. For our awesome culture and community of smokers, vapors, stoners, and all-around hippies, if you like what you hear and you want to stick around, consider subscribing. Welcome to today's show, everybody. This segment is called Know Your Cannabis. It is all about cannabis through and through. Today's top story is about a state judge within Texas who has put a halt on the ban of the Delta 8 THC product that has been talked about for a few weeks now. Many states are trying to figure out what they want to do. So the Texas hemp industry literally scored a huge victory today, that is Monday. The judge ruled that state regulators would be temporarily prohibited from enforcing a ban against the sale of Delta 8 THC products. Now we know that there have been many different retailers who were uh, really upset about this and then some who were disregarding the ban and continuing to sell it. The cannabis company Hometown Hero filed a suit against the Texas Department of State Health Services uh, late last month, arguing that it had improperly revised its hemp policy to specifically prohibit products with more than trace amounts for uh, trace amounts of THC other than Delta 9, the most commonly known psychoactive compound in cannabis. While a different judge had initially rejected the plaintiff's request to have a temporary restraining order imposed on the state, Travis County judge uh, ruled on Monday that they had had adequately demonstrated that they're entitled to declaratory and injunctive relief over the hemp policy update. The decision by DSHS means that plaintiffs will suffer imminent and irreparable harm such as brand erosion, reputational damage, including loss of customers' goodwill, unsalvageable loss of nationwide customers, loss of market share, loss of marketing techniques, employee force reduction, and so much more. In addition, the plaintiffs, along with other similarly situated individual consumers throughout Texas, will have no effective treatment to anxiety, depression, insomnia, migraines, loss of appetite, chronic pain, and nausea. Along with these other individuals may be forced to seek other dangerous alternatives like opioids and or illicit street drugs. Stakeholders were caught off guard by DSHS's announcement of the Delta 8 ban. Regulators Uh, made the decision back in September of 2020 and held a public hearing on the matter weeks later, but businesses say they were not adequately notified and nobody ended up uh, submitting anything during a short public hearing. Witnesses uh, testified in court on Friday. That was because the update was uploaded to a state website as a non-searchable image making it impossible for industry operators and advocates to be alerted to its existence through their usual means of monitoring policy activity. So the temporary injunction against the state will last through the end of the case. 
A final trial on the matter is scheduled for January 28th, 2022. As you may already have heard, Delta-8 is, in fact, derived from hemp. The DEA came out recently and said that because it's derived from hemp, it's protected under the Farm Bill of 2018. So DEA is saying specifically they will not um, go after Delta-8 products. This is pretty huge, I have to say. How each state is going to... um, approach this will vary, but at the highest level of agencies, which is the DEA, they operate on a federal level, they're saying they will not they will not do anything. They're, this is not their department, and these products fall under very specific guidelines. No reason to be taking any strict action against it. So with that, we're going to go ahead and continue on to the next portion of today's show. Recently, Germany has been looking at legalizing weed. This is going to be literally one of the first countries in Europe to do so. And they're going through their political process and talking about how they might uh, be able to achieve this um, either by the end of their current elections or sometime after. Now, there's obviously some pushback within that realm. Some of that pushback come from German police. And they're warning against legalizing weed as parties hash out their coalition deals. Let's find out exactly why they may feel that this is dangerous. In blunt remarks, the police union in Germany spoke out Tuesday against plans to legalize the possession and consumption of cannabis in the country. There must finally be an end to trivializing the joint. With legal but dangerous alcohol already causing enough trouble, he argued, it made no sense to open the door to another dangerous and often trivialized drug like cannabis. Their fears were prompted by ongoing coalition talks between the Social Democrats, who won last month's election, and the Greens and the Free Democrats, all of which think it's time to legalize weed to some extent. Perhaps many of the world leaders are just seeing this as a cash crop. It's always been that, but now they're willing to participate. If cannabis were to be taxed similarly to cigarettes, up to 1 billion euro could be raised annually. While the Greens vowed to drain the black market for cannabis and reduce organized crime, the SPD, meanwhile, has been more timid in its approach, but has called for regulated distribution to adults in field projects to assess the impact of legalization. Earlier this year, the... CSU, who has served as the government's commissioner for drugs since since 2019, also took some tentative steps in a more liberal direction. Although she maintained that legalization doesn't solve any problems, it does create new ones. 
At the time, Ludwig suggested introducing a national limit of six grams, above which the possession of cannabis should continue to be punished as a criminal offense rather than a misdemeanor, arguing that the 15-gram tolerated in Berlin is clearly too high and that the patchwork of regulations across Germany had to come to an end. The issue of how to handle cannabis has recently surfaced or resurfaced, I should say, in Germany because it's one of the few policy positions on which the Greens and the FT, FDP find themselves in joint agreement. Last month, senior politicians from both parties first bumped over their concurrence, causing widespread amusement. But the police aren't laughing. The head of the German Union, police union, also warned Tuesday that legalizing cannabis would likely lead to an increase in road accidents. It would be the beginning of a stoned future instead of the launch of a modern Germany, he said. This is partially true and partially kind of exaggerated. Stoners are the, oftentimes the best drivers, at least the ones who have smoked for quite some time, the, uh, the veterans of the cannabis world and culture, uh, some of the safest and best drivers, the most easygoing ones. Whether or not we can expect more uh, traffic collisions and accidents um, would honestly be more dependent on how many new people are coming into the cannabis culture. The same would be said as more and more states here in the U.S. go ahead and legalize it in some fashion and with that allowing new participants to come in. After all, when you legalize it, you will find that people who once thought they don't want to participate, they don't want to smoke, it's illegal, there's issues, now find themselves leaning in for the first time, wanting to experiment and just try it these new users might oftentimes be the concern, I would say, that some of these um, police in Germany are fearing of. To compare the behaviors of people who drink to people who smoke and claim that it's hard enough already to deal with the alcohol use and to add to it uh, cannabis would make things much harder for the police uni uh, unions, I feel is definitely an exaggeration. People who smoke cannabis are generally nonviolent, very easygoing, more often than not responsible people. It cannot be said for those who typically drink and drink excessively. That's, this is where we see violence. This is where we see uh, car accidents and many, many other incidences that occur when alcohol is involved. It's rather, you know, alarming that the police who would typically, I mean, here in the States, let's say Los Angeles specifically, uh, they don't really want to care. They don't want to be told to care about cannabis. And for a long time, they haven't. They have much more serious things to worry about generally, uh, like serious violent crimes. 
those are the things that they'd rather focus on. So to hear that the police unions in Germany are concerned that their workload might increase um, because of cannabis is silly. So what do you guys think? You're always welcome to leave comments down below and share your opinion, share your insights and your wisdom. Just know that I always read them and I always respond when I can. Let's continue on with the next story. So for many years, cannabis here in California has been highly sought after. The climate, the quality, uh, the access to some of the best genetics, and of course the best talent, it has inevitably been the place where everybody turns to to source their cannabis. So California has for decades fetched a premium price on their on their weed and serious profit, um, obviously. For anyone with the courage to smuggle pounds out of state, marijuana legalization has not, not, has not really changed this. Though we have 36 or 38 states now that have some uh, sort of law for cannabis, whether it's medicinal or recreational, the California bud is still highly sought after. Jars featuring the familiar packaging of the West Coast's most hyped brands like the uh, line the shelves of high-end cannabis speakeasies in New York City. I imagine this is similar to the pop-up shops that we see here. Ever since recreationalized weed came to California, um, people just open up shops. They operate, and then when they get raided, they shut down and move down the street and do it again. The consequences are minimal. And this is, I suppose, what we're seeing in New York City as well. How did they get there? Same as it ever really has. Someone broke the law, but in the legis uh, legislation era, there's a twist. Audacious rule breakers are gaining California's supposedly strict track and trace system and are diverting untold millions of pounds, that is a shit ton of weed, I have to say so myself, of legally grown cannabis. That is a lot of weed. And they're moving it to illicit markets across the country. And this is what a recent lawsuit alleges. Naturally, these are ending up in states that don't have any laws yet. And the markets are going to pay a higher price. The premium is higher because there is no laws yet. And people will pay that 50 or 60 or $70 an eighth for some really awesome California-grown bud. The state cannabis industry regulators are fully aware of the cannabis industry's worst-kept secrets. They aren't bothering to do anything about it either, threatening the integrity of the entire legalization experiment. So this is according to the suit. It's obvious that for years, much of the weed from here 
expands and goes cross borders to other states. Especially when we're talking about cannabis in cartridge form, concentrates and cartridges. Those are easily packaged. You can hold much more during trans uh, transport. So cannabis itself has to be packed a certain way and um, it takes a lot of space, but these cartridges don't take as much space. And they have effectively been able to get these things across the country very easily. They don't smell, there's no odor to them, and they look like, if, if they wanted to package them a certain way, they just look like vape cartridges. What, with what contents? No one can really determine unless there was a traffic stop, an investigation, and a test. So for years, we've seen this. This is also ties into the case. <clears throat> this also ties into the case that uh, we heard about a few years ago with the vitamin E acetate. You see, back then, they were trying to blame the vape industry, nicotine delivery systems and nicotine vape juice. But it had nothing to do with it. And naturally, a lot of the articles coming out at the time uh, didn't mention these facts until the very bottom of the article, where very few make it down that far. But at least they still wrote it in there somewhere. It wasn't completely false. But a lot of people blamed the vitamin E acetate blends on the vape juice industry. And it wasn't them at all. It was actually the cartridge industry in the cannabis world. Many, many people who got into uh, cartridge manufacturing found ways to cut their product with vitamin E acetate without considering the harm that it may bring, uh, only really taking into account the profit motive of how much more oil they'll be able to get when they cut it, um, e uh, basically equaling to more uh, units of cartridges they can sell. This market has been huge. To this day, counterfeiting is a huge problem. The best part is that that was a very short period of time. We haven't heard any cases of the vitamin E acetate situation, which is positive, I think. Though, yes, there's still a lot of um, fabricated cartridges, counterfeited cartridges, looking like other brands, n none of them have been tied to uh, vitamin E acetate as of recently. So that story goes back at least a couple years. So this is positive that that has effectively stopped. Uh, the counterfeiting hasn't stopped, but at least they're safer. It's just overall safer uh, concentrates that they're using without cutting them in any shape or form. Well, with that, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to start the next portion of this show where we'll talk about the effects of the PACT Act on the cannabis vape industry. We'll talk about some of the top strains that are out there right now and so much more. Stick around. Before I begin today's podcast, I want to shout out my sponsor, Anchor.fm. If you've ever wondered about starting a podcast, now is the best time. Anchor.fm allows you to record, add music, transitions, and so much more. 
They'll even help you distribute your podcast to multiple platforms, all automatically. Anchor.fm. Try it today. All right. Welcome back, everybody. So, as we continue our show for today, there are many stories that we're covering around cannabis. There's a lot going on. But something fun to talk about before we get started on the next story, and that's a huge difference from the top strains when we look at 1977 to current day 2021. It's been nearly 50 years and we've seen a huge leap in the products that we have currently. And if we look back to those earlier days, some of the top strains that people were talking about, and we've heard in movies like the Cheech and Chong movies, were like Thai Stick, Hawaiian Gold, Guerrero Gold, Colombian Shiba, and Acapulco. These were some of the most famous strains that we have heard about in movies and that we have heard about from a lot of the OG smokers from back in the day. So let's look at what some of these strains look like now. We have evolved so much. What are some of these that people are trying to get their hands on. Well, the top would be Blue Dream, a sativa. Blue Dream has been long sought after for many, many years. The next one is Wedding Cake. This one is fairly new. It hasn't been around that long, but has quickly garnered a lot of interest and a lot of people prefer it. The next one is Durban Poison, another new strain. GMO, Gelato, Jack Herrer, also a famous strain going back quite a while. Sour Diesel and Girl Scout Cookies. A lot of new strains keep popping up. This is because of two things, I believe. One being that there is a crossbreeding that is occurring in the race to try to get some of the most some of the some of the most resilient genetics and some of the most highly sought after strains. So cultivators are constantly trying to get their hands on these, trying to crossbreed them and develop something of their own that for the second half would be for marketing purposes. 10 years ago, there were a lot of strains and occasionally new ones would pop up. But nowadays, it is very often that new strains arrive to the scene. A part of this as I said, I believe is the need 
to crossbreed and find resilient genetics and try to develop a new strain. But the other half, I believe, has a lot to do with marketing. As many players in the industry are trying to get a segment or a piece of the pie for themselves by building brand and strain recognition. So what is your favorite strain, at least for now? Leave them down below. Let's continue with the next story. As we have talked about in great length, we see cannabis legalization on the horizon. It is coming in one form or another, whether it's a Democrat bill or a uh, Republican bill. The most important question is, what is this going to look like? And how is it going to serve us, the people, not the corporations who will profit from it and not the U.S. government who will tax the shit out of it? I believe that this is in all of our best interest to ask such a question. So this next story talks about one of these Republican-led bills for cannabis legalization. It's led by Representative Macy. And I did read this article, and I'm going to share it with you today. There are points in here that make a lot more sense than some of the other ones that we have seen. Um, from the top down, it appears that the president currently is just throwing up his shoulders and really doesn't want to bother with this issue. He'd much rather let states decide for themselves how they will govern cannabis legalization, respectively, within their own states. But both parties have been very active. This, is, this year has been the most active year for cannabis reform. So without further ado, let's begin on this article. Republican-led bill to legalize and tax cannabis emerges as alternative to Democratic measures. A new Republican-led congressional marijuana legalization bill is imminent. The measure is being framed by advocates as a compromise between simple descheduling, as proposed by other GOP lawmakers, and wide-ranging comprehensive legislation that Democratic leaders are championing. The measure, titled the State's Reform Act, is currently being circulated among stakeholders for feedback and is therefore preliminary, but a final version is expected to be officially filed later this month. This is yet another development in what's proved to be an active year, cannabis reform on Capitol Hill. But the GOP angle is notable, as many have raised doubts about the prospects of Congress passing the far-reaching large-scale marijuana bills that Democrats are leading in the House and Senate. Getting Republican buy-in could prove critical to getting something over the finish line, and the Macy measure seems aimed at appealing to the state's rights and business interests of conservative colleagues on her side of the aisle, while also incorporating some restorative justice and tax elements largely favored by progressives. The freshman congresswoman 
who was the sole GOP vote in favor of cannabis research bill for veterans during a committee markup on Thursday, is aiming to federally deschedule cannabis and create a regulatory scheme, but still ensure that existing state markets are not unduly burdened or undermined by new rules. So here's a rundown of the details. Cannabis would be federally descheduled and treated in a manner similar to alcohol. A 3.75% excise tax would be imposed on cannabis sales. Revenue would support grant programs for community reentry, law enforcement, and SBA aid for newly licensed businesses. The Treasury Department's Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau would be the chief regulator for cannabis with respect to interstate commerce. The FDA would be limited in its regulatory authority, with the intent being that it would have no more control over cannabis than it does for alcohol except when it comes to medical cannabis. The agency could prescribe serving sizes, certify designated state medicinal cannabis products, and approve and regulate pharmaceuticals derived from cannabis, but could not ban the use of cannabis or its derivatives in non-drug applications, like in designated state medical cannabis products, dietary supplements, foods, beverages, non-drug topicals, or cosmetics. Raw cannabis would be considered an agricultural, agricultural, sorry, agricultural commodity regulated by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The legislation would grandfather existing state-licensed cannabis operators into the federal scheme to ensure continued patient access and incentivize participation in the legal market. As federal agencies work to promulgate rules, there would be safe harbor provisions to protect patients and marijuana businesses acting in compliance with existing state laws. People with certain federal cannabis convictions that were nonviolent would be eligible for expungements. To prevent, use, uh, to prevent youth use, there would be a mandatory 21 age limit for recreational cannabis, and the bill also prescribes certain restrictions on things like advertising. SBA would need to treat marijuana businesses the same as other regulated markets like it does for alcohol companies. The measure also stipulates that veterans can't face discrimination in federal hiring due to cannabis use, and doctors with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs would be specifically authorized to issue recommendations for medical cannabis for veterans. Federal agencies could continue to drug test for cannabis. The Bureau of Labor Statistics would be required to issue a report to Congress on the marijuana industry. The draft bill is 116 pages, so these details represent just a portion of what's comp uh, comprised in the legislation. And again, the provisions are subject to change as the proposal is finalized ahead of its formal introduction in Congress. It's also not clear what other GOP offices will be involved when the bill is officially rolled out. The Republican-led efforts sets the stage for some interesting debate. Advocates have already rallied behind measures such as the 
Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, or also known as MORE. They sure do love their acronyms, don't they? Which recently cleared the House Judiciary Committee, as well as a reform bill that's being finalized on the Senate side. It's unlikely that the champions behind those measures would want to cede the issue to a Republican-led bill, even if it does contain components meant to appeal to Democrats and justice reform advocates. But it's possible the legislation will garner favor with industry stakeholders who are eager for a passable legislation proposal. Macy's legislation takes specific steps to preserve the markets that have already been established in states while ensuring that they have the resources to expand under federal regulations. Some Republicans have led or joined their Democratic colleagues on other marijuana bills, but they've generally been far more scaled-back measures, simply protecting states that choose to legalize or deschedule cannabis without touching social equity issues or creating a federal tax on sales. In any case, polling shows that the public is ready for an end to prohibition. 68% of U.S. adults say that they back legalizing cannabis. Despite that support, President Joe Biden continues to oppose adult use legalization. Instead, he's supportive of more modest proposals to federally decriminalize cannabis, legalize the plant for medical use, and let states set their own policies. So clearly, there's a lot going on with cannabis legalization behind the scenes. There's different bills being proposed, and even the one that I had just read to you has 112 pages. What some of those provisions were sound good on the surface, but what's in the other pages? They always bury so much stuff in there. They always introduce it last minute so nobody has a chance to thoroughly read and understand the ramifications if it were passed. Ultimately, that is by far one of the better versions that I've come across. It's, it's well written. It's considering a lot of things that make sense. And I am in favor of common sense, especially when it comes to uh, passing any type of bill. And this is a monumental legislation. It's very important we get this right on a federal level, because if we get it wrong, changing it and revising it will take a lot more time, and the damage would have already been done if we don't approach this carefully. So as we wind this down, we're going to cover our next story here, and that is relating to the PACT Act and how it's been affecting the cannabis industry, the vaporizer products, and obviously you, the end consumer. You may have heard that the PACT Act was passed in March of 2021. It is a wide-reaching bill that is encompassing all vape products. The impact is substantial. It affects manufacturers, it affects distributors, retailers, and of course, consumers. 
the bill was officially passed under the idea that they are trying to reduce teen use of nicotine products. However, the bill encompasses everything that is vape. So when this was announced originally, the cannabis industry was up in arms. We were all very, very confused and very upset because there was no distinguishing between the two. Congress had just written this bill, passed it immediately, and wasn't really taking into account some of the obvious factors that if a nicotine product is for nicotine, then a cannabis vaporizer product is for cannabis. But all of it has been affected. It is impossible to get vape products for cannabis shipped as it's pretty much blanketed the entire industry. So that means batteries for your cartridges. That means vaporizers for flour, concentrate, attachments, you name it. It's pretty much all encompassing. It has been a nightmare trying to navigate what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Beyond that, the broader impact was the shipping aspect. We can't use any of the major shipping services anymore to ship any of these products, whether it be nicotine vaporizers or whether it be cannabis vaporizers of some form. We can't use the United States Postal Service anymore. We can't use UPS and we can't use FedEx either. And that doesn't really leave much room for anything else. Those are the major carriers. These are the carriers that can get products virtually everywhere across the nation. Most importantly, to rural areas. So, all in all, it's been quite a ride going through a lot of the, the difficult intricacies of this bill with very, very little insight. No one has been able to provide solid facts. And anytime you do get answers from somebody within local or federal government agencies, it's always been a good thing to get it in writing just in case. Because everybody seems to have their own idea of what it means. And that is not a good thing. We need, we need one form, one understanding of what these laws are, what we can and cannot do. Furthermore, the taxation aspect has also kicked in, meaning that the PACT Act has enabled the collection of taxes on vaporizer products. The purpose of this was because of tobacco taxation, specifically for nicotine delivery systems or vaporizers. But that same tax collection has been extended to, of course, cannabis vaporizers of all forms. So that covers that story. I hope it helps you understand a little bit of what's going on 
Before we move on to our final segment of today's show, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little more about our awesome culture and community of vapors, smokers, stoners, and all-around hippies. Stick around. fellow stoners for all you glass enthusiasts if you come to this site right here this is my site wickedsources.com arcsmokeshop.com i have something to share with you the marley natural glass collection from smoked bubblers chillums spoons and glass walnut hybrids sleek and sturdy the bubbler has been engineered with beautiful symmetry intelligent proportions for an elevated smoking experience. Crafted from hand-blown borosilicate glass, the smoked glass bubbler features an eight-slit percolator stem and built-in ash catcher. A generous carb is designed for both clearing smoke and filling draining water. The Marley Natural Glass and Walnut Bubbler. The glass walnut bubbler is a unique hybrid water and dry pipe. The generously sized base allows for filtering a large volume of water, while the globe-shaped percolator offers a -a one-of-a-kind filtration system. The immaculate design makes this a piece to display and worthy of smoking out of every single day, while removable parts allow it for easy maintenance. Some features include heat-resistant hand-blown glass and American black walnut wood. Find these on the website right now and they are all for sale. ArcSmokeShop.com or you can visit WickedSources.com. Both will lead you to the same site. All right, top of the hour now. Let's get started with this next piece. So with cannabis legalization on the horizon, and we have talked in great length about this, you may be wondering, hey, maybe now is a great time for me to participate in some manner. But the consensus is showing why it is actually one of the hardest industries to get into at this very time. You would think that if you were early, let's say 10 years ago, That would have been the hardest time. But in fact, now is one of the hardest times to begin in this industry if you wanted to be a licensed player. Here's an article from Insider outlining exactly why this is the case. Why starting a cannabis business is so hard. So we've got some bullet points here. Starting a cannabis company can take $1 million in startup capital to even get a license. With weed still federally illegal, companies could face jail time if they don't follow the specific guidelines. But if they can play the game right, there's lots of opportunity for success in a surging industry. So what we have here is a discussion between a few people 
We have a narrator and various other guests who are having this conversation among each other. Growing, harvesting, and selling weed legally is really hard in the U.S. From, tra uh, from tracking to packaging. The laws are different in every state. Adrian, there's a lot of red tape that just doesn't make sense. Narrator, license, licenses to start a farm can cost up to $80,000 alone. Jeanette, the regulations are really part of what layers on those costs. Narrator, if cannabis companies can get it right, there's a lot of opportunity for success. Jeremy, it can become over a $100 billion industry. That's like approaching what the beer industry is. And that's a very short time. Narrator, but if a business makes a mistake... Jeremy responds quickly, it can quickly slide from paying a fine to severe jail time under drug trafficking laws. Back to the narrator, we visited three cannabis companies across the U.S. to see why the regulations are so tough to follow and how they're keeping entire communities out of the industry. Cannabis with THC, or the stuff that gets you high, is now fully legal for medical use in 36 states including Washington, D.C. Of those, 18 and D.C. have legalized it for recreational use, but it's still illegal on the federal level. So every state has free reign on how to regulate it. Nancy, that's probably the most challenging thing about the regulations. There are many of them, and they differ state by state. Narrator, and it all starts with the business license, the first barrier to the cannabis industry. Will and Adriana want to start a farm in California, but there, a license to grow can cost almost $80,000 with an $8,000 application fee. That's a lot more than a liquor license in California, which can cost just over $15,000 max. Jeremy, so basically anyone who can afford to get a license, they can get one, which makes it very competitive. The competition for licenses becomes extremely fierce and very expensive. Some states do things like, in addition to the fee, require you to have liquid capital of a quarter million dollars, for example. And who's got $250,000 in liquid cash? Few, few people. That begins to immediately lock out entire communities. Will and Adriana couldn't afford California's cultivation license, so they decided to put down roots in Oregon. There, a license and application fee costs between $4,000 and $10,000, and the liquor license, $800. In both states, aspiring cannabis entrepreneurs also have to sign a lease on a property before they can apply for a license. And I have several associates who have been through this, Every time they have attempted to do something, they're hit with that aspect is we can't give you the license until you have a lease on a property. And if you have a lease on the property, we can't give you the license yet because we need to have inspectors come out to determine if it's a viable facility. In turn, basically meaning if 
you want the license, you got to get the property. But before we give you the license, we need to make sure that property fits the guidelines for you to conduct business. And if it doesn't, well, you're stuck in that lease. And if you want to get out of it, you got to pay it in full and then go find another place. Wouldn't it make more sense to be able to uh, outline these in advance before people go property hunting? That is a property that you're paying monthly rent on. It's sitting there empty. You're not making any money, but you know your license application may not go through. We waited two years for a license. They got approved in 2020 and started their company, Magic Hour Cannabis, in Portland. These are so small. I know it's good for me. Does this look ridiculous? No, says Adriana. Nice and fitted. We finally waited these two years. We just waited four months for our plants to be ready to harvest and were basically dwindling with no money. It was very scary. We didn't know if we were going to go under before we even got up. Narrator. So Will and Adriana applied for a grant through New Leaf, a nonprofit that helps fund black and brown owned cannabis companies. Specifically to build intergenerational wealth for the communities most harmed by the war on drugs, those two things come together a high capital intensive business and then the lack of personal capital, personal wealth. And it's a hard place to start for a black founder in cannabis. We applied for the New Leaf grant and we were able to get $10,000, which honestly, for cannabis companies, especially grows, is not that much. It gave us a little more time to sell. We started making sales and gaining momentum. But the expensive regulations don't stop at the license. In Oregon, the government requires farms to have seed-to-sale tracking. This is basically an effort to reduce or at least understand the flow of cannabis into the illicit market. The state tracks plants using tags with barcodes. As you can see, all these metric tags here are made out of plastic. You can't reuse them. The tag takes me hours on end, and then you have to physically go and loop them around each plant. They cost around 50 cents a pop, which is really expensive when you have 1,100 plants in your facility. And obviously, the next harvest, that means you got to spend that 600 bucks again. They go on every plant when they're young. This is considered the baby room and the tags they stay with the plants through harvest. These are even turning purple. So that's one indicator that the plant is quote unquote finishing up. We just come down here to the very bottom of the plant, chop it off, and then we'll hang this up here. We have to individually weigh every single plant according to the tag number that we got. I'll read him the tag, 05579. Weigh this, 183 grams, and then go on to the next one. It's a pretty tedious process, but for regulations, we have to do it. So at this point, you kind of get the idea. The regulations are so strict and so tedious and so very expensive, it is effectively locking people out from participating. And that grant program, as nice as it sounds on paper, 10 grand is really nothing. When you're clearly seeing that it can cost 10 grand for just the license, depending on the state, 80 grand. And then obviously the lease, the initial startup costs of 
getting your seeds or your clones, all the soil, all the nutrients, all the tags. I mean, 50 cents a tag, 1,100 plants. So growing cannabis is labor intensive. If you've ever done it, and I know many people have tried, it's labor intensive. It's a full-time job. If you have one full-time job, this is your second full-time job. So it's round the clock and it never stops. In order to be able to satisfy the needs of the growing operation, you have to tend to it 24-7. And that's if you've even gotten that far. Very difficult industry. I wish that they would have made it easier. And it used to be under the medical laws, you were given a lot more leniency. But now that it's recreational, they have very specific guidelines. They have a stronghold on the industry. And some of these things, just like one of the people in that conversation had said, some of these regulations don't make sense. Why do we have them? Who knows? There's a reason why they do things the way they do. And it's not always for your benefit. And it's not always for the consumer's benefit. Will we ever find out? I'm not too sure about that. But if you were thinking about getting in, consider some of these aspects. Consider the costs. Speak to some investors who understand the risk. Understand their risk tolerance. And move accordingly. This has been a segment of Know Your Cannabis. I hope you guys had fun. I certainly did. If you want to stick around for more every week, I post about twice on this show and I do individual stories every single day as things come up and things progress. I do cover many other stories as well around the alternative plant-based solutions as well as many things, vape, Kratom, CBD, there's a plethora of things that I'm involved in that I talk about every single day that I'm passionate about and I love to educate. So I appreciate you guys. Have a fantastic day. Mm-hmm.